Welcome to Better Off. I'm Jill Schlesinger, your host. Today on the pod, an interview with a fascinating author, George Anders, who's discussing the surprising power of a useless liberal arts education. If you've only got a community college degree, you're probably switching jobs about 11 times. If you've got a full-fledged four-year degree, you're switching it 12 and a half times. And some of that is you're getting more promotions, but you're also more adaptable. And I think actually college is a way to get job mobility so that when your old field comes to an end, you don't sit there and go, I'm never going to find work again. The only thing I can do is something the world doesn't want. And instead you go, okay, deal me a new hand. I'm ready to play again. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. You know, before we got on the air, I was joking with Mark that I really only wanted to invite guests onto the program that reinforced my life decisions. That's why I love the idea that we have George Anders. He is the author of You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a, quote, Useless Liberal Arts Education. Yeah, I have one of them. I just love this book. It probably smashes through every single bit of advice that you have heard about where your kids should go in terms of their majors and they should be STEM majors and they should be math heads and engineers. Well, maybe not. George Anders is going to recount the remarkable power of a liberal arts education and the ways it can open the door to thousands of different types of jobs. Curiosity, creativity, and empathy. That's what George Anders is talking about. I'm delighted to have George with us. And here's our interview. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We are delighted to have George Anders. He is New York Times bestselling author. His book is You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a, quote, Useless Liberal Arts Education. George, welcome to Better Off. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for the chance to be on the show. This is going to be so much fun because I am a liberal arts fan, fanatic. Uh, We start every program by asking you a very important question, and I'm going to give you a choice You can tell us your best financial or career decision that you have ever made. So I'll give you best financial. Uh, We moved to California in 1997. The only time that both my parents and my wife's parents have given us exactly the same advice was on housing. And they said, stretch, buy yourself as much home as you can. And we did. And for about two months, I thought, wow, that's a really big mortgage. And I wonder if we did the right thing. And about a year later, I go, this is going to work out. About two years later, I go, God, we should have taken on a triple mortgage or something. But (laughs) It's done really well. And 20 years of owning the same house, you can build up a lot of capital. All right. So it's another real estate win. Thank goodness. You have to be of a certain age to have that win, I think. Okay. So, George, why did you feel the need to write this book, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Education, or You Can Do Anything being the main title? So a lot of the trigger, I'm an alum of various schools, and I get a lot of people who are a year or two out who find me in the alumni directory, and they know I'm doing something in the world of writing and media, and they call me up and say, hey, can you straighten me out about my career? And we have these wonderful coffee conversations, and they're full of energy, and they're bright, and they're talented, and the job market just isn't working for them. And then in my day job, I write for Forbes and Technology Review and other publications, I talk to a lot of executives, and they go, we're having trouble hiring the right kind of people. We've got this very, you know, rigorous, rigid system, and it's just not bringing us the people we want. And I kept thinking there's this huge mismatch between talent and opportunity, 
We've got good people who aren't finding the right jobs. We've got employers who don't know how to find the people with spark and energy. And I wanted to offer a book that would help the whole talent and opportunity market clear a little better. Whenever we see these surveys of the highest paying majors or the highest paying entry level jobs, they seem to be all focused on engineering or math skills or any STEM, you know, science, technology, engineering, math. And it it seems to me that, that that's where so much energy is going. And I always hear from similar types of people as you in terms of the youth of America, like, I don't like those areas. Am I doomed? And are they? You've got a lot more freedom. Uh, And in fact, one of the sad things is everyone's fixated on starting salaries. And yeah, a nice starting salary is good, but you're going to be in the workforce for 30 or 40 years. And you should be spending at least as much time thinking about where am I going to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And a lot of the high paying STEM fields plateau after a while. And a lot of the fields were, you know, of all things, philosophy degrees, you'd think that would be one of the most impractical ones. And philosophy majors don't make a lot their first six months out of school. But by the time they get 10 years out, they've become lawyers, they've become corporate executives. There's a surprising number of CEOs with philosophy degrees. And if you think about it, in college, they were taught how to rule the world. And give them enough time, they eventually do get to rule the world. So uh, there are a lot more opportunities than people think. And we've, we've sort of shortchanged a whole generation by getting people to think about nothing except the starting salary. And of course, I I know that, you know, certainly on this program, we hear from younger professionals who are servicing all that debt, and they're really uptight about it. And I think that's why they are focused on that starting salary. Is that the original sin in this process, that we have all these young professionals starting out with a big load that is weighing them down, and they do go for that highest starting salary? I think that shortens everyone's time horizon. When you've got an interest payment that's due in 30 days, it's hard to think five years or 10 years. So we could have a whole conversation about how to get through college without as big a debt load. Graduate within four years would be the first piece of my advice. And uh, I think a lot of the situations where people get in hard places, if you switch your major four times, if you switch your school twice, then you're five, six, seven years into the process. And the more you can keep that tight, pick up some community college credits, transfer in, figure out how to get the final degree from a name school, but uh, don't be hesitant to build up some of your credits at a lower uh, cost place. So the more people can do to keep debt down, the more freedom you buy for yourself. You start the book with a couple of of phrases that really jumped out at me. Um, and, And I want to just read a couple of sentences early on. You say, the human touch has never been more essential in the workplace than it is today. And you also say that the market is creating, the job market is quietly creating thousands of openings a week for people who can bring a humanist's grace to our rapidly evolving high-tech future. What is a humanist's grace, and where do people learn it in that liberal arts education? So let me give you an example that really stuck in my mind. I live in Silicon Valley, so I get to see a lot of the tech sector, and a lot of our listeners may know Open Table. It's the outfit that you go online and you book your dinner table for whatever nice restaurant you want to go to, and they'll show you a whole menu of choices. So anyway, Open Table has a whole second business where they go into restaurants and they do consulting for them, and they tell them, hey, you're getting too many cancellations on Valentine's Day. Here's how you need to organize your Valentine's Day list, or you're really doing really badly on Tuesday night. You ought to think about having a promo for Tuesday night. And all of this is based on an enormous amount of data 
But the whole data business can be run by about eight or ten engineers. What they really need are more than a hundred people with iPads and a smile and a nice patter to go into restaurants and sit down with the people who run these restaurants and say, hey, how's it going? Your new menu looks great. You know, that's, that's really interesting, the cocktails you've added. And by the way, here's something that I can tell you about the way you could run your restaurant better. And they end up hiring a lot of English majors and psychology majors and sociology majors because that job is two-thirds about connecting with the, the guy running the restaurant and one-third about giving him the data dump. They've tried just putting it on a menu and saying, hey, click on this, and no one pays attention. If you're running a restaurant, you, you want to have someone communicate with you that understands you and cares about you. And you get a lot of that from the humanities and social science classes and sitting in that seminar figuring out how to, to solve problems and understand other cultures is actually going to make you really well prepared for that kind of job. You only need a college degree for it. It pays $90,000, $100,000 a year. And uh, it's a great opportunity. And It's the kind of thing that's missing from the conversation about what can you do with your degree. The industry is full of, of opportunities like this. You also talk about a couple of skills that maybe those in the liberal arts or, uh, you know, as you said, sitting in a seminar or even thinking about what you're writing about, whether it's art history or you know, 20th century British fiction, you talk about how important it is to listen, read the room. You basically say, talk about how getting different people on the same page, you call it the rapport sector. And I read those those different pieces. I thought, this guy basically says that if you get a liberal arts degree, you're, you you basically have the essential skill set of a salesperson. I mean, when I think about really wonderful salespeople or anyone in any managerial role, those are the things that matter. Listening, reading the room and building rapport. Why is it that a, a liberal arts degree or someone in that major is more likely to have those skills than someone in, a, say, STEM areas. So in almost any liberal arts field, you spend a lot of time thinking about people with very different values and cultural backgrounds than yours. And you can get this in the classics, thinking about ancient Athens and Sparta. You can get it in sociology, thinking about people who are in prison. It doesn't matter what population you're studying. You're starting to figure out, hey, these people think differently than me. They value different things. They come out of a different heritage. What do I need to do to connect with them? And when you talked about these being good skills for sales, I would argue that to some degree we're all in sales. Mm -hmm. And if you look at who's in Congress, who's the mayors of the city, who are the governors, politics is about bringing people around to your point of view or incorporating some of their ideas. If you look at who's running the big foundations, they've got to figure out how to you know, bring charity into the world. Supreme Court, there, there's no end of really high-level positions where your ability to not just make an argument, but bring other people around to your point of view becomes absolutely crucial. And that's more and more true the higher you go up in leadership. And I also thought it was interesting that, and I'm not sure why, but this idea that you're the willingness to accept that you might be wrong or openness to new experiences is something that I guess because if you're looking at a science and there is a proof and there's a theorem and there's a you know, almost an, an asset and a liability and things balance out that there isn't that notion of that wrong is OK. Wrong can lead to a really wonderful outcome, right, from what you originally expect. So do you find in this in researching this and talking to people that those in some of those more uh, clinical or mathematical areas is the opposite true? 
is it true that that they may be less prone to being open to new experiences or accept that they might be wrong? So I think in a lot of the STEM disciplines, you expect to deal with other people who share your exact values. And yes, there is a right answer. There's a formula that will get you there. And engineers are really good at talking to other engineers. Where they get into trouble is talking to people who don't have an engineering mindset and are making more of a personal, emotional connection to the issues, and that just frustrates them, and pretty soon communication breaks down like crazy. So you need to know how to meet your audience in whatever world they're in. And I don't think that's really taught in the STEM programs. There just isn't enough time running through that curriculum to go, how do we deal with different people? In most of the liberal arts fields, that's just woven into every class. It's right there underneath, and you're picking up that ability. And I sometimes think that a college seminar is the best possible preparation for a corporate boardroom Mm. because you're doing the same thing. you got a lot of people with different opinions, and it's not totally clear what the right answer is. You're going to have to explore, and you're going to have to mix and match. And if you can work well in that setting, you can get a lot of stuff done. And if you're just very fond of your point of view and you just repeat it louder and louder, the more the conversation goes, you're not going to bring anyone with you. And and what I always think is sort of um, humorous in many ways is that that we actually created a whole other category of job type because those engineers aren't very good at talking to people who don't understand them. And like this thing called product manager, when I got to CBS Interactive, I had no idea what that meant. And I'm like, what is that? And essentially, someone said to me, well, we're the people who can basically be the translators for the engineers to talk to real people about what they're trying to do. And I said, that's unbelievable. There's actually a job for that because there is this incapability to translate the stuff that they're doing and bring that to an advertiser, say, and actually explain it in a way that they can understand. And the advertiser can't talk to the engineer and say, like, well, I want these three things. Can't you just do it? They need some intermediary. And I guess that there are going to be more and more jobs that are that help bridge that gap between those of us who exist in the, in the complicated gray area of the world and the engineer math science types. Have you found that, that there are just these new jobs that are out there that never existed even 10 or 15 years ago? There are a huge number of those jobs, and I'm so glad you brought up the project manager uh, opportunity. I tell the story of one woman two years out of college who ends up being in charge of internationalizing uh, a website, WikiHow, and they want to have a Spanish-language version and a Dutch-language version and a Thai-language version. And she's got to figure out how do we make it work in all these countries. So they have a whole controversy that blares up because one of their most popular articles is called How Do You Kiss? <laughs> and that works beautifully in England and Germany and the U.S. But in the Arabic world, it ended up being a real point of tension of, oh, my God, can you put this up? Or is this going to liberate women in ways that will stress everyone out? And she managed to work the different elements of the community, the, the women who were curious and thought, hey, this would be a nice article to have, and the sort of righteous guy who didn't want it. And she got everyone to agreement, and the article's up, and goodness knows how many thousands of page views a day it's getting. But you need that ability to get the whole crowd to come together on something. And a little bit of it's engineering. You've got to make the translation work. But so much of it is people. And for all of those kinds of jobs, they're growing fast. I mean, they're like, 40,000 openings a year for them. That kind of background is really helpful. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with George Anders in just a second. But boy, I love the idea that we need to get the crowd growing, but we don't do that necessarily with technology. We do it with people. And in fact, that's why I am delighted that Betterment is the sponsor of this program. 
Betterment is the largest independent online financial advisor. And, you know, Betterment provides personalized advice for your financial planning needs. Based on the information that you tell them, they make tailored recommendations on decisions like how much to invest, how much risk to take on in your portfolio, and the type of an investment count you should have. It's a cool thing because Betterment is giving you a clear view of your net worth and looks at your overall picture. All you have to do is sync your outside accounts like bank accounts and other investments. And then Betterment's going to show you how much your outside brokerage accounts are costing you in fees and uninvested cash. All of the technology that they're using is helping to make investing easier. Right now, Better Off listeners can get up to six months managed for free. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash better off. Betterment, rethink what your money can do. And now back to our interview with George Anders. Obviously, in this kind of economy, one which is so different than, say, our parents' economy where, you know, you worked for a company for 45 years and you, I was about to say graduated, you retired, you had a pension, that was it. We are going to have lots of different jobs. And you also make the point that there is something about the maybe uh, the the grit that you develop in in some of these liberal arts trainings and backgrounds that maybe make those workers a little bit more capable of transitioning either within an organization and not take that straight career path that I'm going to be an engineer, then I'm going to be a next, you know, an engineering manager, and then I'm going to be a senior engineer, that this is a different kind of employment landscape, isn't it? It really is. And in fact, there's some good data from the Census Bureau that shows that between college graduation and your early 40s, you'll end up having 11 or 12 different jobs. So this ability to retool and start over and pick up a new field is absolutely crucial. And what's really interesting about the numbers is if you've only got a community college degree, you're probably switching jobs about 11 times. If you've got a uh, full-fledged four-year degree, you're switching it 12 and a half times. And some of that is you're getting more promotions, but you're also more adaptable. And we traditionally think of college as a way to get job security. And I think actually college is a way to get job mobility so that when your old field comes to an end, you don't sit there and go, I'm never going to find work again. The only thing I can do is something the world doesn't want. And instead you go, okay, deal me a new hand. I'm ready to play again. And in getting back to your earlier point, you also say uh, that fixating on these starting salaries, quote, blinds us to the value of mobility. Can you talk a little bit more about that? What is it that we're not giving those kids who are coming out? What are we robbing them of? Not just that, you know, you could make more over time if you have a little bit more creative, but what else about that starting salary is really keeping people locked into a job that maybe they don't even like. So another thing that's really essential, and this pairs with it, is the ability to create your own job and to build something in a a zone that's unknown. So I tell the story of Andy Anderegg, who was a uh, fine arts major from Kansas, and she liked writing short fiction, and no one was publishing her stories. So she ended up going to work for Groupon and writing those crazy little teasers of, you know, come to the bowling alley and, you know, we'll, we'll do all the things that we, you're going to do there. And it was paying like 33000 a year. But the next thing she does is she goes, you know what, we need a training program for other new writers like me. And we need a campus recruiting program. And pretty soon she's, you know, her salary's up 40, 50 percent because she's created more opportunity. They need someone to run the whole writing program. She becomes the managing editor. Um, she ends up 
setting herself up as a consultant now to other companies that need help creating digital content. And she's earning triple what she did originally, mostly on her own initiative. She's defined new jobs, new opportunities, and she spotted needs. And this is such a valuable thing to come out of college to be able to do, is to write your own future, as opposed to just waiting for someone else to write a job spec for you, that the best roads are not yet paved. And you need that ability to find a road that other people don't yet see and to build a career there. And you can do very, very well. I, I'm sitting here in a studio and we're speaking remotely because you're in a studio in uh, the Bay Area and we're in New York. And I'm looking at my producer, Mark, through my glass. And I think of him when you talk about that, creating an opportunity where none existed. And I very early on, I, I met him when we both were at CBS News and he was working in the radio division And he was sort of getting sick of the news cycle. And one of the things that he would talk to me about is, you know, if you ever do a radio show, I want to be your producer. And I ended up doing a radio show and he became my producer. And then he was very early on in saying, like, we got to do a podcast. we got to turn this into a podcast. But he planted the seed in me. And, And of course, I knew that that was what I wanted to do. But when we launched the podcast, I basically said to him, "Okay, quit your job quit your other job because now I need you. And you're like, you're the man. But without him seeing it and planting the seed, maybe I would have not necessarily said you're the one. In the book, you talk about how there has to be a certain amount of audacity in what you're willing to see and also talk about with somebody because the job that you ultimately occupy may not exist right now. Yeah. And you know, I, I tell other stories in the book of people with anthropology degrees. And if you go look at career guides from about 10, 15 years ago, they say anthropology is the most useless degree. You know, short of being an anthropology professor, there's absolutely nothing you can do with it. And all of a sudden, that's not true anymore, because there's no end of companies that have got websites up, they've got global reach, they're trying to connect with people, and they realize we don't understand our users. And if we don't understand them well, we're going to build the product wrong. So all of a sudden they need usability experts, user experience experts, and what better people to hire than anthropology majors. And you're not going into the Guatemalan village and looking at how people make stone pots. You're going into the artist's colony in New Mexico and you're finding out how people sell stone pots. You're using that same sort of ability to probe uh, user habits and to build up knowledge of people. And suddenly anthro is a pretty relevant degree. So you write this whole book and you yourself, I imagine you have, uh, as you said, long list of degrees and and liberal arts. What was surprising as you went through this process? What did you learn that maybe you weren't even thinking about before you started the project? So I'll give you a couple happy surprises and then one unhappy surprise. Oh, I don't want the unhappy one. Well, we're we're going to get it anyway because we have to get it fixed. Okay. It's like going to the doctor. You have to identify the problem in order to cure it. Okay, doctor, Uh, give it to me. Okay. So the good ones. Um, It's much easier for people to build up social capital now, which means having a network of people that can help you do things. And whether it's LinkedIn or some specialty um, services on college campuses like Switchboard HQ, you can find alumni who are in the field you want to be in. You can chat them up. You can get introductions. And you're no longer stuck in that position where you go, I don't even know how to get into this field. It takes a bit of initiative, but I think that's a big equalizer for liberal arts grads because mm. the old style model where you wait for the campus job fair and you know the accounting firms come and the big tech companies come and there's no one that comes and says, I want to hire a sociology major. But you can go on databases and find grads from your own school with your degree who are working good jobs and you can use them as the ladder that pulls you up. 
So that was really fun, and that was nice, and that was good to see. What I underestimated was the amount of faculty that go, this isn't our problem. Our job is to teach people how to you know, start on the road toward a PhD in my field, and it's up to them to figure out jobs. And colleges are charging too much for the privilege to go there, mm. for them to say, hey, career is your issue. A lot of room to be done for schools to say, hey, we want to provide internships, mentorships, introductions, helpful career advice. Uh, it's starting to happen. Here was my most delightful moment. I think it came on page 121 and 122 because it essentially justified my own career path, which is, you know, that's why I read all these books anyway. I've got to figure out why, you know, my liberal arts education was useful. But one of the things that um, you, you tell a story about uh, this woman, Danielle Shear from George Washington University, and uh, she says, by articulating complicated technical or strategic ideas in plain English, you'd be amazed at how much progress we've made solving problems. So I want to bring that plain English thing. She says, I don't use my degree to write code. I use it constantly in working with clients. It helps me be clear about what the client wants. And so basically these jobs that straddle technical and non-technical areas being able to speak English helps. And I always felt like when someone said to me, yeah, how'd you get on the news? How'd you do that? I said, you know, I could just talk about really complicated financial stuff in a way that people could understand. That was as simple as it got. I think that is the truth, though, that there are these areas that people are, they're quite murky, whether it's medicine, it could be law, it could be finance, it could be anything like that. And if you just talk to someone who will talk to you at your own level, the way you can take it in, you can build a career around that. I was sort of like, yeah. That's why it happened, not just because I was so lucky. And in fact, it's a skill that we undervalue, that anyone can keep a complicated field sounding complicated, and it takes a real gift to make it simple. And you look at the Nobel laureates, uh, you know, Richard Feynman could explain to you why the Challenger blew up and just do it with a glass of ice water and a, you know, a ring. Knowing how to keep it simple is unbelievably value and unbelievably rare. So total agreement with you on that. George Anders is the author of You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Education. George, before you go, we started with your best financial decision, which was buying that real estate because the parents and the in-laws said, go for it. What was the worst? So the, the worst one by far, my wife had a summer job a couple years into our marriage at Microsoft, and they gave her options on 1,800 shares, and the stock went sideways for a while. And at the end of the summer, she said, you know, we could all move to Seattle and make a go of it, or I could quit this, and you know, we'll reconnect on the East Coast. And I go, I'm not sure there's a lot of kick left in the Microsoft stock. It didn't go up in two months. Why don't you come back? And about a year later, she goes, you know, those options actually would have been worth about $30,000. And then two years later, she goes, you know, those options actually would have been worth about $150,000. And we stopped keeping score when the number got to like one and a half million. And That's... it's always my barometer of the marriage. If I haven't heard about the Microsoft ah. options for a couple of months, we're doing well. If, if they're starting to come into the conversation, I need to go buy some flowers or do something to just back on. I love that. I lo well, you know, what? Every, everybody has a regret trade like that. So, But I appreciate that you being somebody who is sort of involved in it and she in it, that you can be in the middle of it and think either the best or the worst of any investment. So I think in the moment that we always learn that we always say, oh, you know, not going anywhere or it's going to the moon. And then years later, you can go back and judge it. But generally speaking, the more we can invest in our education and our kids' education. And parents, don't be afraid of the liberal arts education because George Andrews says you can do anything with it. George, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger.
Okay, it's time for the listener question of the week. If you've got a financial question, it could be about anything. It could be about your career. It could be about your taxes. It could be a real estate, an investment question. I don't care. Anything with a financial bend to it, anything like that. Just give us a holler. You can email us, ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. You can also tweet your question at Jill on money, hashtag better off. Right now, we're talking to Bill, who's on the line from Boston. Hi, Bill. Welcome to Better Off. How are you? Good, thanks. Good to hear you, Aunt Jill. I'm a fan uh, since the 404 and a longtime listener. All right. Thank you so much. What's going on and what can I do for you, Bill? Just like listening to a lot of your other listeners, I'm trying to figure out how to get my kids through college. So I came up with a different plan and wondering uh, your thoughts on the matter. Okay. Tell me, first of all, tell me about you and the kids and ages and all that kind of stuff. Sure. I'm uh, 39 years old. I'm married, two kids. Uh, Kids are two and four years old, both boys. Uh, I work and my wife does as well. Our combined income is roughly about a quarter million dollars a year. Uh, We've got some cash. Uh, We've got some rental property, own a home and all that fun stuff. Oh, that's great. Um, So right now, combined income of uh, 250 grand. Uh, Are you both maxing out your retirement plans? Yes, we just recently started doing that. Um, right now, uh, our retirement's probably sitting just south of half a million. Oh, great. Fantastic. And you said you're 39. How old is your spouse? Uh, 34. Oh, very good. Marry younger. So I should do that exactly. next time. <laughs> uh, when you look at your cash flow right now on your 250 a year, you max out retirement, you pay your mortgage and everything. How does your cash flow look? It looks fine right now. I I am concerned, though, just because one of them is going to daycare, preschool, all that fun stuff. But as the second one rolls in, now we're doubling up on that expense every year. And I'm like, Mm. okay, well, we've got to reevaluate. This is going to get a little costly. Mm -hmm. In addition to your retirement of a half a million dollars, do you have other assets, money, um, just safe money in the bank or Uh, anything else going on? Uh, totally. Uh, we have uh, cash and cash equivalent accounts, uh, so that's roughly about 250000 So what I mean by cash equivalents is like your Vanguard, your Euro price, things like that. Hold on a second. You don't mean cash and cash equivalents. You mean cash and mutual funds, right? Correct. Okay. Because when I think about cash, I think about cash. You're saying you've got some cash and you've got investments. Correct. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. That's what I'm thinking. All right. So now... You said you had rental property, right? Totally. Uh, We purchased a piece of rental property three years ago, and it's been doing pretty good for us. Oh, that's cool. Okay. So tell me about both of the properties. Number one, your primary residence, uh, how much is it worth? Uh, Primary residence, probably if I sold it, somewhere around $700,000. And the mortgage? Uh, Probably $600,000 available. $600,000 available. So you only have a $100,000 mortgage? Or are you saying you have a six hundred thousand dollar mortgage? Uh, other way around. Yeah. Okay. I owe about five something six hundred thousand on it. Notice how I wanted to give you more money than you had. Okay. I the know. rental. How much is the rental worth? Uh, rental's worth probably a little bit more than that. Probably close to eight hundred thousand. Okay. What is the mortgage that's outstanding? On um, that, it's probably in the ballpark of say five fifty. Okay. And the rental cost. Is it more or less on a cash flow basis? In other words, sometimes people will say like, hey, I've got rental property. And when I take my tax deduction, I show a loss. Is it kicking off income to you before taxes? That's my question. Yes, we are uh, cash flow positive on that investment uh, okay. every month. Okay, great. What are you doing with the cash flow right now with, uh, with that extra money? 
Uh, good question. Um, right now, it's just sitting in an account just in case stuff breaks. Um, and with rental property, you got to expect something like that to happen soon enough. Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about what the game plan is and in terms of like, it sounds like retirement is great. You got this non-qualified money, meaning the cash and the Vanguard funds. Um, that's rocking and rolling. So what's the big concern for you? Is it funding college for the kids and what you sh- how you should do it or whether you should do it? Should we let them go to college or not? Yeah, exactly. No, no, good questions. Um, what we were thinking about was using the rental property to fund our kids' college. Um, we said, okay, this is an idea. I, I haven't, I've heard of folks doing it, but again, I just don't know the pros and cons well enough to mm. speak on behalf of it and said, I got a great person I need to call about this. I, I have this, it's funny, I feel like I have a clear case of deja vu, and here's why. <laughs> because I remember a million years ago when I was a financial advisor, when that was my full-time job, Um, someone came into my office with the exact same game plan. Same thing. Like, I've got these beautiful rental apartments. They're flipping out tons of money. I'm just going to use that to pay for college. And uh, I said, that's good, but what happens... And now this think go back in time. You're very young, but there was a time before the financial crisis when people didn't think about bad things going on in the real estate market. I said, well, what happens if, um, I don't know, like something bad happens in the market, in the real estate market? Or what happens if the neighborhood changes and your rental income is not as good as you thought it was going to be? And he kind of looked at me like I was nuts. He said, what are you talking about? Like real estate doesn't go down in value. The big risk is you say, all right, how much is it throwing off a month right now, the rental property? Uh, say I'm probably netting 2500 bucks a month. Okay. So now you say to yourself, $2,500 a month, piece of cake. I could basically fund not all of college, but a part of college for each kid out of the cash flow, right? Mm-hmm. And the rest I'll just use my money that's in the non-qualified accounts. And you can do that. And I would just say to you, one problem being that that approach has some risk in that I hope you don't that there would be no problem but the risk could be that at the wrong time there's a dip in the real estate market you lose a maybe you lose a tenant and all of a sudden your monthly income is not 2500 a month and I'll just do it in today's dollars it's 1200 a month mm-hmm. and then what do you do then you got to come up with money elsewhere so what I would suggest is It sounds like the rental property got in at the right price. It sounds like it's throwing off a good chunk of money. Why not take some of the cash and the Vanguard money at right now and fund 529 plans for the kids? Why not? Because there really doesn't seem to be a downside in that to me because you can take some of the money. How much is in cash and how much is in investments? I guess let's start there. Cash. Uh, my wife and I together probably have about a hundred grand in cash, mm-hmm. and the rest, uh, one hundred fifty thousand, probably sitting in investment funds. Okay, like those investment funds. I'm going to assume. Do you have mostly gains in that in those funds? Yeah, we've been pretty lucky, especially mm-hmm. since we just got in after Brexit. Okay, so that means that we don't really want to sell that. But what I think you could do is let's. Why not take the hundred that's in cash? Let's take a part of that. And you've got these two kids, right? So why not take $28,000 each out of the hundred grand that's in cash and open up a 529 plan for each kid, right? And use that for this year. Then the cash, that monthly cash for the rental property, how much is in the rental property account, the cash account? Uh, we're in the ballpark of 40 grand. All right. 
I mean, how you've owned this property for a couple of years, right? How much do you usually spend on an annual basis? Like just upkeep stuff. Uh, ballpark, two thousand, three thousand dollars. That's it. Yeah, that's it. We've been lucky thus far. I mean, again, all right. So then you've major. got okay. So that's all right. So keep the forty that's in there. But then you know, once you make this this big chunk into the kids' accounts, uh, you know, out of your cash. It, you know, you can leave your cash as is and you can start using that $2,500 a month in 2018 mm-hmm. and start putting that money into the 529 accounts. Yeah. And We're also thinking I, I just, about selling the property as well. So when the kids come close to college, say, hey, why don't we just liquidate this whole thing? And yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a teeny tiny problem with that. One is, of course, that same risk, which is, uh-oh, uh, what if the property isn't worth as much? But more importantly... I don't know what tax rules are going to be then. Um, if the thing is flowing beautifully, you may not want to sell it. You may want to just keep it and let it be a cash machine. I just think it gives you some more flexibility if you can fund the 529 accounts and you get that money working and you've got a nice chunk of money in the account. I think that's going to give you a better way to approach your own sort of overall financial planning, giving you lots of choices because maybe you will sell it. Maybe by the time the kids go to school, they're like, hey, you know what? We we both uh, decided we're going to school in California. I'm making this up. All right. And you're like, OK, good. I'm moving to California and you want to sell everything. Fine. You can sell it. But I hate a plan. No, I shouldn't say hate. I worry about a plan when you have it's predicated on perfect market circumstances. So I want to just give you some flexibility. Maybe you will sell it. Maybe it won't matter. But maybe you have the 529 account. So I think it's going to be better to be able to use a 529 plan. It's a such a tax efficient way to invest. This opens up lots of different ways for you to achieve your various goals. So you're achieving your goal of funding college. You're achieving your goal of I want to keep the rental property as long as I care to keep it. You're continuing to fund your retirement accounts. And look, if if your cash flow is a little tight when the second kid is going, you know, needs more care, you can always say, you know, instead of putting the $2,500 a month from the rental property into the 529 accounts, you could say, okay, you know what? I just need an extra 500 in my regular house account. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that I think is going to be a I think a pretty good way to 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 approach it. You don't have to sell anything. You don't have to incur a tax liability. If for some reason tax law changed and it was a really good time, then you said, "Oh my God, I just got this like gift from the the IRS. I can sell my rental property, and they've changed all the rules, and my gain is going to be much lower if I do it right now." That's a different decision. But I think it's be great for you to have that option. Wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Go get a 529 plan, will you? Definitely. Thank you. Good luck. Thanks for calling. Thanks to George Anders. He's the author of You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Education. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag better off. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. That's ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. Better Off is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. 
I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.